Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Francine Foss, Anish Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Foss is a professor of medicine in the section of medical oncology at the Yale Cancer Center. Dr. Chagpar is associate professor of surgical oncology and director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. And Dr. Gore is director of hematological malignancies at Smilo. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about the management of melanoma with Drs. Dale Hahn and Jennifer Choi. Dr. Hahn is Assistant Professor of Surgical Oncology at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Choi is Assistant Professor of Dermatology and Director of the Yale Oncodermatology Clinic. Here's Dr. Anise Chagpar. So, Dale, I want to talk first with you. So, People will present, especially during summertime, I would anticipate, with moles and things to their dermatologist. Take me through the process of how they get to you. So that's a very, uh, very good question. And people often wonder, what's the process behind this? So oftentimes, uh, patients will, through their own examinations, find a lesion that they either have never seen before or look suspicious and then bring it to the attention of, let's say, a, a primary care physician or if they're seeing a dermatologist already to their dermatologist. Um, this lesion is then evaluated and oftentimes a biopsy is then obtained. And if that biopsy comes back with a pathology showing melanoma, the patient is usually then referred onwards to a surgeon. Um, preferably a surgical oncologist uh, who's experienced in the management of melanoma. And then the treatment options are then discussed at that point. And so, Jennifer, tell us a little bit more about treatment options. I mean, is this uh, chemo first? Is this radiation? Is this surgery? Is it, how does that all work? So the first treatment for melanoma is a wide local excision. Um, and then at that point, it depends on what you call a Breslow depth of the melanoma, which is how deep a melanoma is. It's measured in millimeters. And so considered thin is less than one millimeter. And so um, if it's less than a millimeter, then it's a wide local excision. And that's pretty much all that is needed with then very close follow-up with your dermatologist. Um, if it's over a millimeter, then at that point, the surgical oncologist will, di will discuss with you the need or the recommendation to do something called a sentinel lymph node biopsy. And then it depends on those results. And then if that's positive, then they'll do something called staging with the CAT scan. And then if there's any evidence of organ involvement, at that point is when chemotherapy comes in. All right. So I guess, Dale, you're one of the first ones to see these patients. How do you determine what exactly is a sentinel node biopsy? When do people need it? Uh, and what happens with the results? So that's a very important question. As Jennifer had mentioned, um, staging of patients is one of the critical things that we think about for prognosis and treatment options. So the theory and the hypothesis behind the development of this technique was that if a melanoma 
had some cells that spread to the draining lymph nodes, which is oftentimes the first uh, place that melanomas will spread to. Um, this is a technique to try to detect that because the vast majority of patients with melanoma present with what we call localized disease, meaning there's no evidence of disease in the lymph nodes or anywhere else in the body, about 85% of patients with melanomas. And for most patients, as I mentioned, when you first see them, you'll examine the primary lesion and also examine the draining lymph node basins. And as I mentioned, most these patients won't have any enlargement in their lymph nodes. So you're really trying to determine if there's microscopic spread uh, from the melan melanoma to these draining lymph nodes. So this procedure essentially uses a radio tracer and a blue dye that's injected around the melanoma site and uses that to trace out the lymphatic drainage to the draining lymph node basins. And it is a way that you can track the first lymph node, which is considered the central lymph node, and would be the first to essentially drain the skin area with the melanoma and potentially first harbor any spread of that melanoma. And we can find that lymph node, make a separate incision, remove it, and send it to the pathologist who then have the job of looking for any microscopic deposits of melanoma in there. So we generally recommend mel <coughs> excuse me recommend mel uh, central lymph node biopsy for melanomas based on their Breslow thickness. And the studies that have been done, and there have been extensive studies, primarily the multicenter selective lymphadenectomy trial number one, which have demonstrated that this procedure should be recommended to patients who have melanomas with a Breslow thickness between one and four millimeters. Uh, mo many patients who have thicker melanomas are also candidates for central lymph node biopsy, and the real controversies about patients who have thin melanomas are melanomas that are under one millimeter. Is the controversy because they're so thin that they're likely not going to have any cancer in their lymph nodes? That is uh, absolutely one point. And the prognostic significance of the central lymph node status for patients in that subgroup is debated. So generally for many of us who treat melanoma patients um, across the country, we'll utilize a 5% risk threshold for this procedure. So that 5% risk threshold usually starts to occur when melanomas are about 0.75 to 0.76 millimeters in thickness. Also if they're ulcerated or have a high mitotic rate. So oftentimes use these in combination to stratify patients into risk categories and to see which patients with thin melanomas should be offered a central lymph node biopsy. And so, you know, many patients who may be listening um, and who may have had breast cancer may be familiar with the term of sentinel lymph node biopsy, but in breast cancer, we know that the sentinel lymph nodes are underneath your armpit. But when you get melanoma, you can get melanoma anywhere on your body. So how do you know where that basin is? I mean, do you do a, a special kind of scan before you take them to surgery to see where that drainage goes? Or do you kind of just get into the operating room and use your gamma probe in all of the potential basins prepared to look for lymph nodes wherever they may be? Well, that's a very good question. Oftentimes I tell patients that surgery for melanoma is oftentimes doing acrobatics because you can get a melanoma anywhere pretty much on your body. But to answer your question, to find where the draining lymph node basins are, we oftentimes use something called lymphocentigraphy. And what that involves is an injection of radio tracer around the primary tumor site, and then pictures are taken, essentially looking for where the radio tracer drains. Oftentimes, we can intuitively um, determine where the melanoma will likely drain to, but the lymphocentigraphy is a great way to to confirm that, and also determine if there are aberrant areas where the uh, melanoma may drain into. 
And so you go after those lymph nodes, you take them out, and then does the pathologist look at them right there during the surgery? So um, it's a little bit controversial, but most of the um, surgeons who treat melanoma in this country, most of the surgical oncologists, do not do what you're alluding to as a frozen section, actually do this on permanent pathology. And one of the primary reasons is that the foci of melanoma that's often found within the central lymph node is microscopic and sometimes can be only found on one slide. If that slide is used for a frozen section, if there's an issue, then you may have lost that potential diagnosis. All right. So they have their surgery and they go home and they come back. And Jennifer, they come back to the clinic and now they've got a sentinel node that does have cancer. Um, in that lymph node. Do those patients then need more surgery? Do they need chemotherapy? Do they need radiation? What happens next? So if they have a positive sentinel lymph node, um, Dr. Hahn can talk more about this, then there's this question of if they need what you call a completion lymphadenectomy. And that would be um, discussed with the surgical, onco the surgical oncologist. But um, after that point, then we were talking about staging and doing a CT. So if uh, the staging CT does not show any further involvement, then the medical oncologist will speak to the patient about possibly doing something called adjuvant therapy. And adjuvant just means um, possible chemotherapy that is used afterwards to try to decrease your risk of developing further lymph nodes or further metastasis in other organs. Okay, so so the first step after you get back the sentinel lymph node is the decision about whether you complete this node dissection, right, Absolutely. Dr. Hahn? And how are you going to make that decision? So at this point, the SSO, ASCO, and NCCN guidelines recommend that every patient with a positive sentinel lymph node should be recommended for a completion lymphadenectomy. Even if it's only a single cell? Uh, absolutely, because even because studies there have been studies that shown that even isolated tumor deposits can have a prognostic significance, and we don't have enough data right now to suggest otherwise. There is a trial ongoing right now, and actually the accrual is finished, and the results will probably be available in about three four years or so called the multi-center selective lymphadenectomy trial number two, in which in this trial, what they tried to assess was whether or not every positive central lymph node patient required a completion lymphadenectomy. Unfortunately, until we get the results of that trial, we won't have any recommendations to tell us otherwise other than that every positive central node patient should have a completion lymphadenectomy. Okay, so um, I'm going to take off the uh, moderator hat and put on the breast surgeon hat just for our listeners, that is very different than in breast cancer. Because mm -hmm. in breast cancer, single isolated tumor cells really make no difference to prognosis. And this goes to tell you that breast cancer, melanoma, different kinds of cancers are very different. Absolutely. There's different biologies of cancers. Okay. So let's suppose you go and you complete the dissection. Does the number of lymph nodes make a difference to you, Jennifer, in deciding whether or not people need adjuvant therapy? Or are you also a uh, one cell uh, could buy you adjuvant chemotherapy if your other staging workup is negative? So um, usually it's 
determined not necessarily on number of nodes. So if you have any positive node and the rest of your staging is negative, I think they would they would still it's it's really it does still um almost like a case-by-case basis, they'll speak with you, determine other risk factors, but it really will be a discussion of if you need adjuvant therapy, even if it's just a single node. So um, any any positivity, they'll talk to you at least about it. And it also depends on your age and that kind of thing, if you would tolerate it too. Hmm. And so, Dale, Jennifer mentioned that these staging studies happen after the surgery, but do you ever do staging studies before you do the surgery to see if they've got metastatic disease? Because um, is there a benefit to surgery in people who have widely metastatic disease? So uh, that uh, it's interesting that you brought up that question. It's a little bit of a controversial area in terms of your first question, whether or not you need imaging studies and a staging workup uh, such as CAT scans and PET scans prior to um, doing any kind of surgical intervention. So I'll answer that first question. So generally in patients who are who present to you who are clinically node negative, meaning that you don't feel any lymph nodes that are enlarged, and there's no suspicion based on history and physical or exam uh, or any anything otherwise that the patient may have distant metastatic disease or deposits of melanoma elsewhere in the body, generally we don't recommend, it's not recommended that you do, you need staging studies beforehand. However, if a patient is found to have a positive sentinel lymph node, as we were discussing before, that tells you that this melanoma has a different biology. It is a more aggressive melanoma that tends to spread. And that is an indication actually for staging studies to make sure, because those patients are at higher risk now for distance spread of their melanoma. So in terms of your second question about are there indications for doing surgery on patients with widely metastatic disease, that is an involving field in itself. And it's a really exciting time in the treatment of melanoma because since 2011, we now have six new FDA-approved drugs, uh, which have really, really changed the field of treatment of patients with distant metastatic disease. Okay. Well, we are going to pick up on what those exciting new advances in the treatment of metastatic melanoma is right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about melanoma management with my guests, Dr. Dale Hahn and Dr. Jennifer Choi. Smoking can be a very strong habit that involves the potent drug nicotine, and there are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking. But smoking cessation is a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment. Quitting smoking has been shown to positively impact response to treatments and to decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies. Smoking cessation programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center, and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale. New Haven. The smoking cessation service at Smilo operates on the principles of the U.S. Public Health Service clinical practice guidelines. All treatment components are evidence-based and therefore all patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications and smoking cessation counseling. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. For more information, go to YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. 
Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guests, Dr. Dale Hahn and Dr. Jennifer Choi. We're talking about the management of metastatic melanoma. Now, right before the break, Dale, you were saying that this is a really exciting time um, in melanoma management because there are so many options for how to deal with widely metastatic disease. Jennifer, that usually is the purview of the medical oncologist. So tell me more about what's on the horizon. What do we have? What makes this such an exciting time? So there are several advances. Um, One of them is the genetic sequencing of melanoma. So we now know that... 50 to 60 percent of melanomas actually carry a mutation in something called BRAF, B-R-A-F. And um, if we find that a melanoma has a BRAF mutation, then one of the options now is something called a BRAF inhibitor. So we have something called uh, vemurafenib or dubrafenib. And um, these have only been available for the last couple of years. And so now if we see a patient with metastatic disease and they have a BRAF mutation, we can use this medication to pretty almost rapidly help to decrease a lot of the tumors that they have. Um, the only problem with this medication is that within 6 to 12 months, a lot of the patients, the majority of them, will actually develop resistance. Mm-hmm. So then those sh- tumors that have shrunk will start to grow again. And so another really exciting thing, and this uh, are two... Are, what we call two categories of immunotherapies. So one of them is called ipilimumab, which is anti-CTLA-4, cytotoxic T-lymphocyte-associated antigen-4. And um, there are two new agents called anti-PD-1, programmed cell death receptor 1 um, inhibitors. And so, uh, and these include pembrolizumab, which was FDA-approved in September of just this past year, 2014, and nivolumab, which was just FDA-approved in December of 2014. Now, the way these immunotherapies work is that it does not depend on the patient's mutation status. You can actually use this on anybody with metastatic melanoma. And the way it works is that our bodies naturally they have what you call a checkpoint, a checkpoint inhibition. So, when you develop an immune response. CTLA-4 and programmed cell death receptor, they will act to decrease your immune response so that your body doesn't go crazy. It's kind of like a, it's a, it's a way to keep homeostasis, like a, just a, a balance. It's the checks and balances. However, because of that, the tumors then can bypass these checkpoints and then they can start to grow. So by getting these inhibitors that allow your immune system to be activated, it will then allow your immune system to target these melanoma cells. And so um, because of the advances of these medications, we now are seeing patients with metastases that are some of them are, are achieving remarkable responses and even complete remission with some of these medications. Wow. So this is, I mean, this is something that you hear about on the news and on TV about harnessing your body's immune system, because I think a lot of people always wondered, you know, you get an infection, you get a cold, your body fights it off. Your body fights off a lot of stuff. How come your body doesn't fight off cancer? So, Dale, I want to come back, however, to this whole idea that, you know, I can understand that if you've got widely metastatic disease, harnessing your immune system to fight off cancer wherever it may be is going to be useful, or targeting these therapies uh, at the melanoma is going to be useful. But where does surgery fit in there? 
So in the past, surgery had a very, very limited role for patients who had widely metastatic disease, and it's about risks and benefits. Um, if you were to surgically try to remove every lesion, it would probably not be possible in patients who have widely metastatic disease. The other thing is even if you try to take out several lesions, you wouldn't affect a patient's survival because there are other lesions that would continue to grow. So surgery had a very limited role and was specific to patients who may have had limited disease, good responses to therapy, long progression-free survivals where they had um, you know, lesions that uh, either stayed stable or completely regressed, and there was one or two target lesions you can go for. The field has completely changed, and in fact, um, it's almost on a weekly basis where you have to keep up with things because there are new advances coming in, particularly as Jennifer was talking about, trying to overcome resistance to single-agent therapy. And really, the uh, the horizon now is about you know, multimodal therapy, combining different therapies, whether it's immunotherapy or targeted therapy, and trying to use that. And the reason why I mention all this is that Whereas before, you'd be very selective about patients that you may surgically remove metastatic lesions. Now you have these powerful therapies that are allowing patients who have widely metastatic lesions to have many of these lesions regress, and maybe only one or two target lesions be now evident, and these patients who wouldn't have been surgical candidates are now surgical candidates. In addition, patients who may continue to have widely metastatic disease that, disease that has regressed but stayed stable, and there may be just one lesion that continues to progress, those patients may all end up, go, end up going on to surgery also to remove that resistant lesion or to be able to consolidate the disease. Hmm. So it sounds like surgery has a role in debulking or taking out what's residual, but it sounds like the real advances, no offense to the surgeons in the room, None um, taken. Is, is really in, in medical oncology. So tell us about the side effects of these immunotherapies. I mean, is this the stuff that makes you lose your hair and makes you get sick? Because everybody who comes in who asks about chemotherapy, I will tell you that that is their number one concern. So that's a good question. These um, medications actually all kind of have their own sets of side effects. So if you look at BRAF inhibitors, um, it's actually pretty well tolerated. Uh, there is uh, a, a wide range of cutaneous skin side effects that you can actually see from BRAF inhibitors. Um, one of them includes wart-like lesions. These are benign. They sort of look like these small, rough papules that can occur anywhere on the skin. These are easily treated just by, um, you can use something called cryotherapy, liquid nitrogen to freeze them off. Um, one of the more concerning side effects is something called squamous cell cutaneous skin cancer that can occur due to the melanoma treatment. So wait, so, so you're going to give me a treatment to get rid of my cancer that has a side effect of giving me cancer. <laughs> yes. yes. So, but the way to think about it is is that it's it's really targeting your melanoma and one of the side effects could be a different type of skin cancer which is very treatable Got in it. terms of just getting it off the skin. So, this other type of skin cancer is really not considered dangerous. There have been no reports of metastasis from the squamous cell developed by BRAF inhibitors. And so this is really just something that, especially if you've had a lot of sun exposure, then in a sun-exposed area, you may develop something called a squamous cell skin cancer. 
Um, but this is, this is again, it's very treatable. And then other side effects can include really rough skin um, that's really dry, that can become very itchy. We can deal with that, sometimes with topical steroids. Um, and then in addition, in a small percentage of patients on BRF inhibitors, you can develop something called hand-foot-skin reaction. And this is when your hands and your feet can become very painful and develop very thick callus-like lesions that can be very, that can actually make working with your hands or walking difficult forever not forever so there are ways that we can we can use to decrease um, try to decrease the side effects of this and then also if for whatever reason you stop the BRAF inhibitor then pretty quickly it actually goes away um, and then when you talk about the immunotherapies these are a different set of side effects that we see so ipilimumab um, we should mention that these in these patients in the patients who are being treated with this, only 10 to 15% will actually respond. But in those 10 to 15%, it's a durable response. So these are the patients that if you do respond, you can have a really great effect for many years. But it's associated with several side effects. So some of that includes um, skin side effects like a dermatitis. Again, it's usually tolerable and we can treat it with topical steroids. The other more concerning side effects include colitis. So people get, can get really severe diarrhea, um, hepatitis, which includes inflammation, which is inflammation of your liver. In addition, there are endocrine abnormalities such as inflammation of your thyroid and also of your adrenal glands and sometimes of your pituitary gland. So all of these are possible side effects that we see that sometimes if they're severe enough, you have to hold the treatment and then sometimes give systemic steroids to deal with it. With the anti-PD-1 therapies, um, we're still collecting a lot of data. You can still see some of the side effects like colitis and hepatitis and also even dermatitis and different types of rash. Um, in general, though, it does seem to be less severe than ipilimumab. So it's, it's generally pretty well tolerated as, as a whole in terms of a class of drug. With none of those, did I hear that your hair falls out? So not really. Yeah. Hair loss is not a huge side effect of any of these. I am sure that if there are a lot of patients out there right now who are jumping up and down for joy. Yeah. But Dale, I want to ask you, one of the things that Jennifer mentioned is targeted therapy, like looking for genetic mutations in BRAF and this kind of thing. So are is every single melanoma that you take out genetically sequenced so that we know what mutation uh, it has or doesn't? Well, in today's world, no, we, we don't sequence every single melanoma we take out, but we do look for specific mutations. And mutations such as BRAF, which are driver mutations and are druggable targets in which we have therapy available, yes, we do test for those specifically. We'll oftentimes test for BRAF, NRAS, and so forth. Um, but to test every single melanoma at this point, we don't do. Okay. So if the melanoma has a BRAF mutation, they would get a BRAF inhibitor. And the immunotherapies seem to work for just about everybody. Is that right, Jennifer? So no, not necessarily. So like I was saying, ipilimumab, you'll only see a response in 10 to 15% of patients. So it doesn't work in everybody, unfortunately. And then the anti-PD-1 inhibitors, pembrolizumab and nivolumab, these we're seeing a, a approximately 30 to 35% response rate. So again, it's not in everybody. So how do you know when you're going to use an immunotherapy? And if you're not going to use an immunotherapy, then what? What, is, what do they get? 
So, um, again, as Dale was mentioning, this is a rapidly evolving field. Literally, melanoma is one of those fields that is is changing by the week. But right now, given just the recent introduction of these anti-PD-1 inhibitors, um, the guidelines suggest that if, if you have a BRAF inhibitor, you have to look at the, the patient's performance status is what we call it. So if if they even though they have metastases, if they're actually doing quite well and they're not rapidly, you know, getting ill or worse, then people are considering starting um, uh, immunotherapy first. Uh, if they do have a BRAF mutation and they are rapidly decompensating, they're not, they're not, they're not doing well, and it's growing rapidly. Then you'll give a BRAF inhibitor first so that you can control the tumors, and then probably eventually also then start an immunotherapy. So immunotherapy really is becoming like a first line. Um, uh, treatment now. And right now, there are a ton of studies in terms of, okay, then what's better? Ipilimumab, pembrolizumab, or, or nivolumab? Do we do a combination? Do we give a BRAF inhibitor first and then do immunotherapy or vice versa? So there are multiple studies that are that are trying to determine what really should be first line. And what about if patients don't have a BRAF mutation? What do they get? So if they don't have a BMRAF mutation, then immunotherapy is now considered first First line. line. Yeah, they're going straight to it. So Dale, you know, in this rapidly evolving field of melanoma uh, therapy, um, Jennifer mentioned a lot of clinical studies. Um, And I know that clinical trials are really important. There's a lot of them going on at Yale and elsewhere. uh, And they really do push the field forward uh, in terms of finding out what's a better therapy um, and so on. Do you find that your patients are enthusiastic about participating in clinical trials, or are the, is there still some trepidation about being on these trials? In general, I would say many of our patients are, are very enthusiastic about being enrolled in clinical trials. You have to remember that prior to 2011, there really weren't that many good options for patients with metastatic melanoma. You had high-dose IL-2, um, you had adoptive cell therapy, um, but really the options weren't nearly as robust as they are now after 2011. And with all this excitement, with all these new therapies, there I think the patients have also um, adopted that enthusiasm also. And it is critically important because although we have these new drugs that are FDA approved, we don't know how to combine them appropriately yet to be able to maximize outcomes for patients. Dr. Dale Hahn is Assistant Professor of Surgical Oncology at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Jennifer Choi is Assistant Professor of Dermatology and Director of the Yale Oncodermatology Clinic. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program. And we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.